Our talk today is entitled The Tar Sands and the Future of Alberta. The development of the tar sands is, a, is the most controversial issue facing Alberta, and it goes beyond the borders of our province, as our speaker will explain. But he also argues that without a clear plan, fair royalties and hard renewable energy targets, the tar sands could impoverish the province. Our speaker today is Andrew Nikiforek. Andrew hardly needs an introduction, and he's certainly no stranger to SAGPA. In fact, according to our website, this will be his fourth appearance at this podium since 2000, presenting such diverse topics as pig manure, from factory farming, sour gas, and the Weibo Ludwig saga, biological invasions, unsettling our hospitals, and now tar sands and the future of Alberta. Andrew is an award-winning investigative journalist and author, writing for numerous national publications, including The Walrus, Maclean's, Canadian Business, and The Globe and Mail's Report on Business. He's also a frequent commentator on CBC. Andrew's Alberta-based book, Saboteurs, Weibo Ludwig's War Against Big Oil won the Governor-General's Award for Nonfiction in 2002. His latest book, The Tar Sands, Dirty Oil and the Future of the Continent, will be available outside in the lobby after the session. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Andrew Nikiforek. Well, thank you very much, Trevor, uh, for that introduction. It's a great pleasure to be here again in, in Lethbridge, um, uh, talking to the council. And, I, and, and what I hope to do today is to start more of a conversation about this project. That, that's my principal goal. That's why I wrote the book. I, you know, we, I live in this province. I've lived in here for more than 20 years, and I couldn't help but notice that the tar sands had dramatically changed the quality of my life. You can't have 700,000 people pour into the province over the space of, uh, uh, of a decade, and most of them coming here to make a killing, not to make a living, and, and not, not notice a difference. So <clears throat> I'm, I'm going to talk quite qu quickly, and I'm going to take you through a, – uh, to really show you the, the real significance of, of this project and what it means not just to Alberta but, but also to Canada and how it has changed us. Now, first, let's start with the resource itself. It is, you know, really it is, it is not uh, – First, my, my first question to almost every audience, and I've given similar presentations now like this to thousands of people across the country. Does anyone here see oil floating on top of sand? No. This is why I don't call it the oil sands, okay, and why I refer to it as the tar sands. Because the resource is bitumen. It's a very, very heavy hydrocarbon. It's a third-rate hydrocarbon. Um, it has got too, too much carbon in it, not enough hydrogen in it, and it takes brute force to take out of the ground, and then you have to upgrade it, and then you have to, it has to go through a complex refinery. This is not light oil. On, and on the charts where you, you, you measure oil for its gravity and its density, at the bottom comes bitumen. It's the big yellow block there. And bitumen is so dense and so heavy, it won't move through a pipeline unless you dilute it with light oil. Now, it's the world's most expensive uh, uh, resource. You look at the bottom of the chart here, and we see that Saudi Arabia is produce, still producing the world's uh, cheapest oil, although bloody oil. And But we have, at the end of the chart, the world's most expensive oil in terms of production costs. 
the Alberta government has always been, you know, wanting to to get at this resource. It's got more than a hundred year history, incredibly colorful. Here in 1932, we were describing it as the magic sand pile. You know, someday we will figure how to get, uh, um, you know, this uh, sand pile production. And here at the end, they say, here in the tar sands of Alberta is a unique opportunity for industry, an opportunity and a challenge in the free land of free enterprise. Um, we got so desperate to produce this resource that in the 1960s, a geologist proposed to the government of Alberta, well, why don't you just nuke it, blow it up, put the, blow up a bomb underneath the resource, you'll create a cavity, everything will melt in there, and then you can just produce it like normal oil. The Alberta government said, that's a great idea. And so we went, we went to the U.S. government, and the U.S. government said, we'll give you the bomb. And then they went to Atlantic Richfield, and they said, we've got just the spot, 70 kilometers south of Fort McMurray. And uh, fortunately, saner mines prevailed. The Russians actually tried this on with their heavy oil in Siberia, only to discover that there is no market for radioactive oil. <laughs> but anyway, along comes uh, this guy, Joseph Howard Pugh, the eighth wealthiest man in the United States, president of Sun Oil, uh, a religious fundamentalist. There's, there's a real connection between oil and religious fundamentalism. Anyway, he was also a far-reaching, far-thinking guy. He knew the day would come when the United States would run out of uh, light oil, like crude, and he said he started Suncorp, started the first, first project in the uh, 1960s, and he said, look, no nation can remain secure in this atomic age unless it has ready access to oil. So we finally arrived at a process for getting it out of the ground, open pit mining. You cut down all the trees, you drain, you drain the fens, the bogs, the muskakes, and then you roll up the soil or overburden, as engineers call it. It's an earth-destroying operation. 20% of the bitumen reserves can be mined this way, can be produced this way. By the way, it takes two tons of sand to produce one barrel bitumen. And as Jeff Rubin, the chief economist at uh, the CIBC, puts it, you know, you, when it takes, if you've got to schlep two tons of sand to produce one barrel of oil, you know you're at the bottom of the ninth inning. Now, the other production are steam plants. This is where you take three barrels of water, uh, uh, boil it with using natural gas, pressurize it, inject it into the ground. This is for the deeper formations. You melt the bitumen like a block of wax, and you produce uh, the, uh, the bitumen to the surface. It, too, has a heavy footprint on the forest. Um, it will essentially for, uh, fragment uh, uh, much of northern Alberta with seismic lines, road pads, well pads, uh, and pipelines. And that's the area that uh, the, the steam plants will could essentially industrialize an area the size of Florida in northern Alberta. Now, the boom really started in 1996 with the Declaration of Opportunity. Federal government, provincial government, uh, and uh, Ralph Klein and company said, okay, let's, it's time, let's really hit this resource. And so we reduced royalties to 1% for bitumen. And at that time, Syncrude and Suncor were paying on average between 25 and 35%. And we said, no, generic rate, everyone will just have to pay 1%. Then uh, this incredible salesman went down to the United States and said, you know what, we've got energy to burn uh, up here, and I've never seen a pipeline I didn't like. And Murray Smith went down and also told them about our give-it-away royalty scheme, and he made that declaration, uh, no less, in Austin, Texas in 2006. And then, you know, very quickly, we became the number one supplier of oil to the United States. We replaced Mexico. We replaced Saudi Arabia. We're now number one. Only three out of ten Canadians knows that we're the number one supplier of the United States. 
Now, 18% of the oil the U.S. imports now comes from Canada. Of that 18%, approximately 10% is coming directly from the tar sands. Most of the oil is going to the U.S. Midwest, uh, Petroleum Defense District Number 2, some of it to Utah and some of it to Washington State. That's 1 million barrels a day in, in terms of production, and we want to increase that to 3 million, uh, ultimately up to 5 million. We want to get the entire United States addicted to this resource. But along comes this guy and says, now, wait a moment, wait a moment. Oil is dirty, dwindling, and dangerously expensive. And so now we're kind of scrambling up here, wondering, well, what are, what are we going to do? We, we thought the Americans would just say yes and yes and yes. So a nation-changing event has taken place in Alberta without a national conversation about its consequences. And, in, and you know, I go to British Columbia, and what are they talking about? The $4 billion uh, um, Enbridge pipeline proposed to the port of Kitimat so that 300 super tankers can go up the West Coast every year and take bitumen all the way to China and Southern California. They're wondering if they want to be part of that. And you go to the Northwest Territories, and they talk, you know, we've got a lot of natural gas in the, in the Mackenzie Delta, but do we want to... to, to uh, to have that gas uh, just be piped right down to Fort McMurray to keep bitumen production going. And then you go to Saskatchewan, and they're having a big debate about pr Bruce Powers proposed uh, as many as two nuclear power plants on the North Saskatchewan River, one in Lloydminster, perhaps one in North Bedford, one in Prince Albert. And they're saying, what are you going to use these nukes for? And in all likelihood, they'll be used, one, for bitumen production in the tar sands, two, for secure electricity uh, uh, exports to the United States. And then you go to Atlantic Canada, and Atlantic Canada says, you know what, 14% of our population has left Atlantic Canada in the last decade and moved west to be part of the great tar sands boom. That's 340,000 people. But they're saying, you know what, we don't have any energy security out here. We're, we're nearly 100% dependent on foreign oil. And where is that oil coming from? From the North Sea, Algeria, and Saudi Arabia. And they're saying, what the hell is going on here? What kind of national project is this that is making us less and less secure over time? They spend $10 billion a year on, on oil, and they want to get off of it. I mean, get, switching now to bitumen makes no sense to these folks. Let's get on. Let's move on to, with, the, with the transition. The social consequences of the boom, rarely discussed in Alberta, have been absolutely horrific. Anybody who's lived in Fort McMurray, been up there, can understand that. The housing crisis, the social crisis, the gambling, the casinos, the prostitutes, um, um, and um, big issue in Atlantic Canada. Everyone knows about the messy picture about Fort McMurray because almost everyone has a spouse, a relative, a girlfriend, or boyfriend who's been up there. Um, Chinese-scale growth, the community essentially went from 30 to, to nearly 90,000 people in the space of 10 years, and we blew it up. And so there's these two communities. There, those folks in Fort McMurray want to make a living there, and there are those, the, uh, the increasing majority, who just want to make a killing and really don't give a damn about what mess might be left behind at the end of the day. Here's just a, you know, Hummer ladies. The number of escort services in Fort McMurray climbed from 1 to 14 in the yellow pages. I don't know if they arrive in Hummers. I don't know what the deal is, but anyway. <laughs> now, another nation-changing thing that's really important has to do with the petrodollar. We now have a petroloony. Our dollar goes up and down with the price of oil. You can't become the number one supplier of oil to the world's most mightiest empire and not change your politics and your economy at the same time especially if you don't have a conversation about it. We have a prime minister who's very much, you know, an Alberta guy, a hydrocarbon guy. He is the son of an imperial oil executive. Okay? And he does not believe in climate change. Most of his friends were members of the Friends of Science that said, you know, climate change is a joke. We don't believe in it. 
And that's who's prime minister of this country right now. And he's saying that we are now going to become a global energy superpower. How the hell do you become a global energy superpower if you've only got one market for your energy? And that's the United States. And then we have a, an incredible threshold was reached in 2007 when investments in the tar sands exceeded investments in the manufacturing sector in the country. You know, in Ontario and in Quebec, they're having a conversation about how the tar sands has affected their ability to sell their manufacturing goods uh, across the border with less wonky petrodollar we now have. And then we have federal politicians who act really surprised when they see pictures like this in the National Geographic wondering about the environmental liabilities and the consequences of rapid tar sands development. And then we'll get about the money, a few words on the money. We know that we are giving it away, all right? Our, 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 our leaders have said that. Uh, the Royalty Panel Review said, yes, we're among the lowest uh, for heavy oil in terms of royalties of any jurisdiction in the world. Um, we haven't saved. Here's a list of countries with sovereign funds, with, you're saving the money from, from the oil. Uh, Alberta is not, uh, doesn't make that list. Um, there was a report that came out just last year called Preserving Prosperity. Jack Mintz, who's a columnist for the Globe, uh, Canadian Business Magazine, uh, helped serve on this panel. And he said, look, this is where we're going to go uh, if we don't start saving. Here's our, all of our surpluses, but pretty soon we're going to head into deficit territory because we're not going to be making much from this resource in the future. And there's our declining assets over time. And here's one of the big uh, critical sentences in this report. Alberta should not look like a ghost town in the next century when the resources are depleted. And Mintz is saying that by 2030, we need to have saved at least $100 billion. And I would say we, we, should, we need to double that. And so what has Canada saved? Canada makes more money than the province in corporate taxes, 5 to $6 billion a year. The International Monetary Fund says we should put that money in a sovereign fund. We haven't. We've spent it all. Norway, in contrast, had a conversation about what it to do but with its oil wealth and decided, you know what, we're going to save for the future. They have a fund worth $400 billion. So I would argue that in the tar sands, we are in currently uh, have, have encountered a wreck. We've had an accident, and it's a serious accident. And even the oil companies know this. And here's Shell saying, what would happen if you developed a resource as dirty as bitumen really, really quickly without uh, thinking about climate change, without thinking about uh, fossil fuel conservation, without thinking about renewables? Well, unconventional oil projects attract increasing opposition from powerful water and climate lobbies that oppose the environmental footprint of additional developments. No kidding. Right? And, and this was, Shell predicted this. Now, one of the big drivers behind the tar sands, you'll never hear anyone in the provincial government talk about this, is peak oil, all right? The world is running out of cheap, easy, light oil, and that's why we're hammering uh, the tar sands the way we are. It's essentially the world's last, greatest oil field, and if you're an oil company, it's the only place you can grow reserves, period. That's it. Shell, a third of its remaining reserves on the planet are in the tar sands, okay? That tells you something. That tells you the peak oil is real, and what is peak oil? Well, you're sitting at the bar, you have a glass of beer, and before you know it, Funny thing about, about depletion, it happens. And they say, you know, except that's where we're at. We've got half a glass left now, but this pub is closing. And this, uh, this uh, very, very important geological fact is, you know, very much tied to the financial meltdown. When we hit 150 bucks a barrel, everything started to melt globally in, in terms of capital because you, know, you don't have capital unless you're burning lots of oil. And that's the big change that happened in our economy in the last 150 years when we got addicted to this resource. So here's Colin Campbell, the same guy in the picture, saying the second half of the age of oil now dawns and will be marked by the decline of oil and all that depends on it, including financial capital. You know, 
$200 billion is now invested in the tar, in the tar sands. Amazing. Absolutely amazing. So, and oil. Don't forget, oil is the Viagra of the species, right? We were never numbered more than a billion folks until we started hitting oil. And then, boom, we're six billion. Okay, so we've got some serious problems here. Now, here's the, the part of, the, of my talk that the Albertans in the audience, their lights started go, going on above their heads. You can see this illumination from the crowd. Um, and oil will bend a democracy over time. And it all has to do with the money, right? Here's the revenue we're making from, from hydrocarbons, from natural gas and tar sands and conventional oil in this province, right? We don't have a plan for that money, really. All right, and so what does the government do with it? Well, when you, you, you have a petro state when more than 20% of your income comes from a particular resource. In Alberta, it's 30%. So the first thing that happens is you get rid of taxes, right? No sales tax, very little corporate tax, and you run on the oil money, right? And you, you, you're thinking you're going to make everyone feel warm and fuzzy with that. And then you start spending like hell. And we have one of the worst spending records of almost any jurisdiction in the country, right? And then comes the secrecy because you don't want people to ask questions about the money. How much is there? How much was collected? Did we, was it collected properly? Was it audited? Did we save? Uh, did we get our fair share? I mean, Ralph Klein, he went ballistic when we started to ask him, are we getting our fair share? And we weren't. And the Auditor General said repeatedly, you're leaving billions on the table. Why would you do that? And now the provincial government says it doesn't want to fund the Auditor General uh, and give him enough money to complete his reports anymore. I mean, how punitive and ridiculous can you be? All right? He was pointing out something that we all need to know as Albertans. And as a consequence of having all this money, we have a one-party state ruling the province for 38 years. You'd have to go to Mexico to find the same sort of phenomenon where you had the PRI ruling Mexico for 68 years, again, on the basis of Mexican oil wealth. And as a result, if okay, if you're not being taxed, you're not being represented, and what happens? You don't show up to vote. 60% of the population of this province no longer votes. Only 40% votes. Lowest turnout in, in, in all of Canada. In, in Fort McMurray, 14% turnout. But, it, you know, if, you're, if the government is only going to represent the resource, which is what it does, that this is how oil undermines democracy or any kind of government, then you, you are not being represented in the end. And then you have, you know, all kinds of interesting characters uh, rule Petro states. I mean, where else in the country would you find a monarch in charge of a province except Alberta? All right? Fourteen years. King Ralph. Now we've got King Eddie. Um, Hugo Chavez. He's used oil money in Venezuela to twist and bend uh, um, Venezuela. My point here is that you don't have to be right wing. You don't have to be left wing. Oil is going to bend you regardless of what kind of wings you're wearing or what kind of ideology you, you subscribe to. Vladimir Putin, again, using oil to, to really increase his authoritarian hold on, on, on the Russian republics. Sarah Palin, sort of the Ralph Klein of Alaska. Same thing, drill baby, drill girl. Now some dirt, real quick. The tailings ponds, because I know you've had people here from uh, uh, Alberta Environment saying, don't worry, everything is fine up there. These ponds, uh, you know, now cover 120 square kilometers. They're absolutely toxic. Um, they are all leaking. They are all leaking either into sinkholes that are, that they, that are, these were, they were, many of these ponds were built over sinkholes, or they're leaking into the Athabasca River. We do not know how much of the seepage is, is getting into these resources, but we know it's happening, and I can show you the reports. And uh, so on, where's it coming from? Well, it takes three barrels of water to make uh, a bitumen. Actually, in reality, Syncrude uses 16 barrels, Suncor uses 12 barrels, and, and for each barrel of bitumen, and of that, 16 or 12, three have to be refreshed from, from the Athabasca River. Now, 90% of that ends up in tailings ponds. 
these uh, and uh, this th- oh, this whole wastewater. Um, 1974 report to Alberta of Environment. These large open bodies of polluted water probably represent the most disturbing aspect of mining in the tar sands. 1974. The report said, find an alternative. Don't grow this project till you've solved this bloody problem. We didn't. And then we, we, to make matters worse, we even built a dike right in the middle of the Athabasca River, the Tar Island Dike, first one built by Suncor. There it is. And there it is today. And you can't tell me that that thing hasn't been leaking for 40 years. Every scientist, every geotechnical engineer I've talked to said, Andrew, that Tar Island Dike has been leaking for 40 years into the Athabasca River. And it's eroded the entire base of the dike. Should have been decommissioned 20, 30 years ago. A disgrace. Here's the scientific slide showing you where the seepage is still occurring, about 4,500 gallons a day, I believe. Now, the ponds contain all kinds of nasty stuff. And, in fact, the industry and government say, well, look, we're recycling all this water. Yes, 80% of the stuff in the ponds is being recycled and being used for bitumen production. But in the process, they're actually concentrating solid waste in the ponds as a result. So they're making the toxicity of the ponds worse by recycling the water in some ways. And, you know, here you can see the, the bitumen on top. There's naphthenic acids, polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbons, cyanide, arsenic, heavy metals, you know. That's how much stuff we're making a day from, uh, you know, 1.8 billion liters a day of waste. And Randy McCullough at Natural Resources Canada says, you know what? You could build a Rideau Canal, <clears throat> or you could build a canal twice the size of the Rideau from Edmonton, uh, no, from Fort McMurray to Edmonton and from Edmonton to Ottawa, and you could fill it with toxic sludge from the tar sands. All right? And here's what the newest reports are saying from Natural Resources Canada. Continuous recycling of tailings ponds water has contributed to a decline in water quality that has consequence for bitumen recovery, water consumption, and reclamation efforts. Now, energy cannibalism and carbon capture and storage. We talked about the steam plants, how much natural gas they use. Absolute phenomenal. In the next 10 years, the steam plants alone could use $200 billion worth of natural gas. We all know that's not sustainable. Uh, it takes about 1,000 cubic feet of natural gas to create one barrel of bitumen in the steam plants. How much is that on a daily basis? We're burning enough natural gas to heat 6 million homes a day. To replace this natural gas consumption, according to the Canadian Parliament, in their report on the oil sands, we'd need to build 20 nuclear reactors. In the process of burning all this natural gas, you know, we're making a, we've got a hell of a carbon problem up there. We're making more than the entire country of New Zealand and more than many U.S. states, okay? And we could be producing 127 megatons of CO2 in the tar tar sands alone by 2020, which would be the same as the state of New Jersey, more than Oklahoma, more than Virginia, and three times more than the state of Montana. Our solution, carbon capture and storage, okay? A couple of issues here, Um, (laughs) cost, scale, and security, You cannot retrofit a coal-fired plant with carbon capture and storage without increasing the cost of that plant by 50 to 100%, which means increases in electricity bills for all of us by 50 to 100%. The next issue is, okay, this is our single, this is our big strategy for dealing with the carbon emissions from the tar sands. We only got one strategy, and it's the world's most expensive, and $2 billion worth of your taxpayers' dollars has been devoted to it. And, and this is how we're going to solve our problem, okay? And we've got uh, conservative magazines like The Economist saying, whoa, politicians are pinning their hopes for delivery from global warming on a technology that is not quite airtight. All right? That's one of the most right-wing business publications in Canada. And then you've got an organization like Greenpeace, one of the most left-wing environmental groups, saying, 
why carbon capture and storage won't save the climate. So when you've got conservatives and you've got uh, left-wing types both agreeing that something is wrong, then I think you need to pay attention. So what is wrong here? Well, let's go to the United States because they're much more honest about these things than we are. And here you have a report uh, from the Government Accountability Office saying the absence of any commercial-scale demonstration of the technology at a power plant is a big drawback. So we, nobody's done this yet. Number two, certain limitations of coal gasification technology for capturing CO2. We haven't figured out all the technology. Three, the high cost of retrofitting carbon capture and storage to existing uh, coal-fired power plants um, <clears throat> account for a significant, you know, it is, is going to be huge. They're saying so. There are some problems here. In fact, you talk to the U.S., they say there will be no commercial projects for 12 to 20 years. So anyone here in Alberta saying we're going to set this up and get this going by 2015 is lying. It's a deception, a complete deception. And so where are we going to put all these cold fires? Where are we going to bury all this carbon? Here's an earthquake map from Natural Resources Canada. Not on the West Coast, not on the East Coast. How about Alberta and Saskatchewan? Well, here's another security issue. We have earthquakes in Alberta. Who causes them? It's the oil and gas industry. You can cause an earthquake by taking too much stuff out of a reservoir too quickly or putting too much stuff into a reservoir too quickly. This is the Strachan gas plant in the 1970s and the 1980s. The sour gas removal from this plant caused a number of earthquakes recorded by Natural Resources Canada all around this plant. The largest earthquake in Alberta ever was from a, a, a water flood of an oil reservoir north of Calgary, five on the Richter scale. So are we going to see earthquakes as a result of bearing millions of tons of carbon dioxide? Who knows? Another big issue, security issue, is well density. We've got, we've, you know, Alberta's a pincushion, 350,000 wells. Same thing with Saskatchewan. Is the CO2 going to come back up if we haven't properly sealed a lot of these well bores? And what about, okay, what about the tar sands? Carbon capture and storage was designed for cold fire plants, not for the tar sands. So how are we going to capture the nitrogen oxides coming off this truck unless we hire a bunch of guys from the Philippines with a vacuum cleaner running behind it? You know, not going to happen. And here's what the federal government says in the fine print in its report. Oil sands operations are so diverse that only a small portion of the CO2 streams are currently amenable for carbon capture and storage. All right, you talk to energy experts and you say, okay, what about, will we be able to scale this up? We will be able to make a difference here. And so I go to Vlaclav Smil in Manitoba and he says, you know what, this is the GM solution. And he says uh, GM in the 1970s had to deal with emissions. They put a catalytic converter on their car, you know, cost a hell of a lot of money, it, heavy metal problems, didn't work very well. Honda said, you know what, we'll redesign the car so we don't have the emissions to begin with. And what Smill says is well, we need a Honda solution, not a GM solution. And he says, you know what, there's no way we can scale it up. We would have to use twice, uh, we'd have to use um, the, the world's entire petroleum infrastructure Double it just to save, just to capture 25% of the world's carbon. Are there better solutions? Okay. Yes, there are. All right. So why don't we capture fugitive emissions? Why don't we, why don't we, with fugitive emissions, big issue in 10% of our greenhouse gases are all coming from leaks in refineries, uh, gas plants, well pads, you name it. So why don't we identify those leaks and repair them, save industry money, and reduce our carbon footprint dramatically? Uh, and it won't cost $2 billion worth of taxpayers' money either. Um, here's just a, showing you a report on some of the monitoring that's been done. Just take a look at the top here. Here's You've got a sweet gas plant, and industry was saying, well, we think we're leaking 188 tons a year of methane. Um, scientists measured the real leak, and they found, my God, you've got 1,000 tons of methane leaking. So 
that's the kind of stuff that needs to be fixed. And we know this when this province is serious about doing any damn thing and when the federal government is serious about climate change, these are the kinds of programs we'll begin to see as well as conservations and renewables. Okay, so where do we go? Well, St. Francis of Assisi, I think, gives us good direction. We start by doing what's necessary, then do what's possible, and suddenly you are doing the impossible. And the first thing we need to do is have a conversation about this project and its scale and pace and what it's doing to the country. Is it, as Dick Cheney suggested, a pillar of sustained North American energy and economic security, or is it, as Carl Clark, the guy who discovered the hot water process for bitumen, a second line of defense against dwindling oil supplies? Is it, as uh, uh, Barack Obama suggested, you know, uh, a debate about dirty, dwindling resources? I don't know who the other guy is in this picture. I haven't heard of it anyway. <clears throat> but, uh, <clears throat> you know, it has been said by a number of people that it's more important that we change our leaders than our light bulbs. So what do we need to discuss that we are not discussing? We need to discuss renewables, the importance of renewables. Solar panel industry in Germany grew overnight, and they are now the leaders in producing solar panels. Solar industry should be, we should be leaders in, in, in this province. We should never have gotten to the tar sands without becoming leaders in renewables at the same time. Otherwise, how are you going to deal with this whole issue of, of dirty oil? You can't. You've got no strategy to deal with it. Um, same thing with wind. You know, we've missed the boat on, on this level as well. There's Denmark. 20% of their electricity now comes from wind. China. China is getting greener by the day. High-speed electric trains. Where are our high-speed electric trains? Where's our train service from Fort McMurray to Edmonton? I mean, instead of, uh, you know, the highway to hell and all the deaths on it. Um, solar towers. This is in Spain. I mean, southern Alberta. A great place for solar, solar towers. 140-hectare uh, uh, footprint. You reflect the sun's rays to a point in the tower. You heat up water to 600 degrees. That is used to power a, a turbine. And you're providing electricity for 20,000 people. You know, why don't we put up 10 of these rather than doing carbon capture and storage? I mean, what would be the savings if we did in terms of carbon emissions? Zero carbon housing. I would have loved to have seen these in Fort McMurray. Fort McMurray should have been the greenest city in Canada. It is not, and we still don't see this, these kind of planned uh, housing units. A national strategy for investing resource wealth, smart idea. We haven't got one in Alberta, and we haven't got one federally either, and we need one. Relocalizing food production. Absolutely. You know, the amount of fossil fuels consumed in food is, is ridiculous, and, and the amount used in transportation is ridiculous and is unsustainable, and that's where we need to make our change. Um, and what would we have as a result? <laughs> we'd have better tasting food, we'd have stronger local rural communities, and, and we'd have lots of good things at the table as a consequence. So where are we at then? And, you know, this is C.S. Lewis basically telling us, I think, what, what we need to do. We all want progress, but if you're on the wrong road, progress means doing an about turn and walking back to the right road, and in that case, the man who turns back soonest is the most progressive. And the question I leave with you today is will that man or that woman be, be an Albertan? Thank you.